CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Leggett. We have a very busy show for you uh, today. There's a lot of politics to uh, talk about. The legislature is facing crossover day, a big day down there. We'll get to that in a little while. Uh, Stacey Abrams has now launched her campaign for governor officially. We'll talk about that as well. Um, But we're going to start by talking about the situation again in Ukraine, which is becoming increasingly dire. I, I want to read you the first couple of graphs of a Wall Street Journal piece that ran in their newspaper this morning that gives you a sense of some of the worst things that are happening there. Russian forces are killing civilians and looting stores and homes across occupied parts of southern Ukraine, residents said, as Moscow arrested elected leaders and sought to replace them with pro-Russian collaborators. People arriving here from Russia, this is being written uh, from a city in Ukraine that's not occupied, from Russian-held areas over the weekend, described hungry and undisciplined Russian troops shooting unarmed villagers, breaking into supermarkets and shops and raiding homes in search of food and valuables as their own supply lines have failed. It's a horrifying picture. Um, But in just a minute, um, we're going to talk with... um, Hugh Atchison, one of the most celebrated chefs, certainly in the Southeast, uh, restaurants like Five and Ten in Athens, uh, which has been operating for a long time to great acclaim, Empire State South here in Atlanta. He operates restaurants in a number of hotels as well. And Hugh is just back from Eastern Europe, where he set up a Uh, kitchens to feed people fleeing from Ukraine. Um, And we're going to talk to him about his experiences there along with our Tuesday panel. Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, my Tuesday partner, is with me. So is Audrey Haynes, political science professor and the director of the Applied Applied Politics Program at University of Georgia, and uh, Kurt Young. Uh, the chairman of the political science department at Clark Atlanta University are with me. But but now let me introduce first, and certainly, panel, I want you to weigh in with Hugh as well, Hugh Atchison. Hugh, you are just back uh, from your experiences uh, feeding people who had fled the country. If I could start, I've been following your Instagram account, and I just want to read you something by way of introducing you that you wrote. You said, feeding terrified people is heartbreaking but a necessity. We nourish. We are kind and understanding of the confused and exhausted. The war is totally unnecessary and the results are savage. So I do what I do. I feed people. Hugh, describe what the experience as a starting point was like for you as you um, started talking to people who had fled the country. Yeah, it was harrowing. Um, the first border crossing that we were at, uh, we were at for about six days in Romania, and that's the Surat border crossing, which has really accepted a ton of refugees. And a lot of them it were was an interesting quandary because they were Indian students within Ukraine. There's about 50,000 Indian students, and most of them were being funneled into Romania. 
So my job logistically was to, working with World Central Kitchen, was to figure out what the proper food was to uh, nourish those people because um, the local uh, food is not exactly uh, commensurate with Indian uh, dining, and, and there were a lot of vegetarians. So we were trying to quickly uh, do that because there were two camps, one of 400 and one of 600 Indians literally sleeping on the floor of a gym. So that was dire. And then at the border, seeing just people, I, I called it a stroller convoy for the most part, because it was really women and with toddlers and, and children uh, and the elderly crossing over, bitterly cold crossing. Um, and and they just, they needed food. And uh, there were a lot of NGOs working there really successfully. World Central Kitchen is dear to my heart just because I'm very close friends with Jose Andres, the founder. Um, and we did a lot of good. And then we went up to, we were in Poland, at the crossing called Majika. Uh, and Poland has really been inundated with a, a, a stream of refugees that's kind of, un, I mean, it's massive. I mean, there's three million refugees at this point. And this is like, you know, almost almost 8% of the population of Ukraine. So it, it's a dire, dire situation. And were you seeing just a, this steady stream of people coming across uh, the border? And what kind of condition were you finding them in, emotionally, physically? I, I uh, you see a lot of emotion, a lot of sadness, a lot of uh, very, very tired people, and a lot of exhaustion. And uh, they'd been traveling. I mean, if you're traveling from eastern Ukraine all the way west, uh, uh, Ukraine's a very large country, so that's, that's hard to get through. Um, and then there's a bottleneck at a city called Lviv, which we a lot of the press has holed up in, and uh, and now they're uh, they're bombings and strikes right next to Lviv and just north of it. Um, literally 16 miles away from where we were. Um, so, you know, that bottleneck at Leave is going to break, and all of those people are going to push towards the border. Leave is a city of 700,000, but now has also about 300,000 refugees in it. Tamara? And Hugh, I'm wondering, you know, I I think with along with the rest of the world have been trying to keep up with this coverage of what's going on. And obviously the situation is so sad, so dire. What did you see there that, that maybe the press is getting wrong or something that maybe your average person sitting in America might not fully understand about the situation over there? I mean, I, I think the press for the most part is getting it right. There's a lot of... Um, propaganda going around, but uh, if you can whittle away that uh, chaff and, and, and find the, the real kernel of truth, it's definitely there, and they're covering it pretty well. Um, so I find Reuters and AP have been doing a really good job, NPR and New York Times have been doing a really good job. Uh, the Guardian, uh, I think, has really uh, been doing an exemplary job of the coverage. Um, but, you know, for the most part, it it, it, it is a situation that you can uh, imagine in your head. It is uh, cold and sad and uh, masses of people, and they need help. So, um, Hugh, did you, I know a number of Ukrainians, of course, speak English. Um, did any of them share with you their experiences of coming across the long <clears throat> trek to get to, to some semblance of safety? Yeah, I mean, a lot of them recounted stories about being on trains for, you know, a day and a half and then, you know, finally waiting and waiting 20 hours uh, on the Ukrainian side of the border uh, in the cold. And, you know, so 
uh, it was pretty hard. And a lot of there were a lot of English speaking people that you could communicate with. Um, but my knowledge and pronunciation of both Ukrainian, Polish and Romanian is very poor. So a lot of gesticulation. Audrey? Well, you know, it, it's hard to think of a, a question when there's so much going out there. But, you know, and, um, you know, we're inundated with news about it every day. But the one thing I was thinking about, especially with Hugh's experience, is just the level of empathy that, you know, we feel in this war. I mean, it is much closer to us than many other wars because we're seeing it play out and we, we've taken a, a, a more active role in a sense, living through the crisis. And, and here you, you got to have a firsthand experience of that. And, you know, it makes me wonder about how Americans really understand sort of the plight of the individuals and the empathy they might have when they hear the stories that you share. I mean, just having a meal, leaving your home and not knowing where you're going to go and not even knowing if you have food to eat. Um, it, I mean, that's pretty amazing. And that just having that meal that that tastes normal to you, that something that is nourishing um, makes is a little bit more familiar. Did you get that sense that, you know, that provided, you know, more than just the nourishment relief, which is life, but just a feeling of being cared for, you know, I mean, and that's sort of what I think, you know, the world is trying to say, we care for you through organizations like yours and the messages we send and the, and the money that we're giving, even though we're not there fighting with you. Yeah, I, I think that uh, empathy for the situation means making the table longer for everyone to sit at. And in the most difficult times in life, if you can provide some sort of thread of decency and nourishment to people, then you, you make a difference. And I think that, uh, you know, it, but you also have to logistically understand what's happening. These people are crossing a border and never knowing if they're going to sleep in their own beds ever again, carrying all the treasured things that they have, which is at this point been whittled down to not much, they cross the border and then they're handed diapers and all this other stuff. And it's uh, it, logistically, you have to think about that because you can't weigh them down with everything. They don't know where they're going next. And they're not all going to stay in Romania and Poland. I mean, all these countries are going to eventually push them uh, you know, more westward. Um, and the EU has been very receptive to creating a three-year uh, situation for the refugees to live in, in safety and um, and can work and, and do all that. So that's good. It's just that, yeah, the reaching out with, with empathy is the key. And uh, it's not it's not political work when you're doing work like this. So it's just feeding um, uh, Kurt, um, I'm, you know, clearly, <clears throat> excuse me, this is a horrifying war that's developed, partly because it's the first war in Europe since World War II. Um, but Eugene Robinson had a fascinating piece in uh, the Washington Post today, the opinion writer, in which he said that he thinks one of the reasons that we are so attuned and so sympathetic to the, to the stream of people escaping from Ukraine uh, is because they look like most of us. They're white European refugees. And we do not have that same sense of recognition when we look at refugees, say, from Sudan and other countries. And, and Kurt, I think that's a powerful uh, statement that's worth just taking a minute to, to talk about. Yeah, Bill, you, you read my mind. Um, I wasn't going to frame my question for you, 
uh, in terms of uh, uh, the, the column that you mentioned, I, I saw that, and it is exactly right. It is raising the question about how we consume suffering in this country. Uh, we consume suffering often uh, through the lens of our own domestic experiences. And if we, are, if we are locked in a particular kind of perspective that values one set of lives uh, and devalues other sets of, set of, set of lives, then it's going to be reflected in the way we respond as a society to suffering taking place all over the planet. What's happening in Europe right now, by the way, Bill, I will say that in between uh, the Second War and, and this conflict, we did have oh, the, the, the conflict in the, in the, in the um, Balkans that um, were not necessarily European-seated, but certainly close enough to trigger a lot of what you uh, and what we're seeing now. Um, but that Absolutely. aside, yeah, that aside, uh, um, I, I was, couldn't wait to uh, raise another part of that question, Bill, right, which has to do you with the, as an example of that, um, the recent reports around the uh, awful, awful, this is an awful human tragedy, period. And, and it's hurtful to have to ask a question to take it to a yet a deeper level, which has to do uh, here with the uh, level of, of um, treatment of persons of African descent, in particular African uh, um, 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 citizens or uh, students who may be studying in, in Ukraine and other parts of that region that's uh, in, uh, um, uh, touched by this conflict and how they are treated much differently uh, from others who are trying to flee. Uh, Bill, if you, you allow me to ask you if you can relate, uh, address any yeah. of that. If you Did you see of any of that, Hugh, or was that beyond your ken? Uh, that was beyond, uh, I mean, I've read a lot of the situations along the Polish border with Africans trying to enter as refugees, and it's, it's abhorrent. And, the, you know, the, the coverage of, of the war, uh, it, it does seem to get a lot more coverage than a lot of conflicts within, say, Africa in the last 50 years. And um, Sudan and places like that. And I can't answer that. I just think that there's so many concentrated eyes on this right now. And a lot of things that happen elsewhere in the world just do not get the recognition and the focus that they should be getting. Um, you know, and, and maybe it's a time, maybe it's just this time in social media that we are front and center in this war more than ever. Um, and we should be front and center in, in conflicts in Sudan. And, and it, it's, it's, yeah. I've got no answers to that, unfortunately. Hugh, before we let you go, um, I just want a couple of questions. Um, and I guess the question becomes, first of all, we do not want to in any way diminish the suffering that uh, the people of Ukraine are experiencing, whether they, are, uh, they look like most of us or not, they are experiencing uh, very difficult uh, uh, issues. Um, but Hugh, what will stick with you? Uh, it, the images that you had uh, that you'll think about for some time to come. Um, I just just the the literal border crossings and just uh, you know I went to a massive meeting of of, of local government in in Romania and just them all arguing about the same thing. <laughs> it's just uh, it's the same everywhere with government. Um, and but to fix these things, we need logistics and we need empathy and we need smarts and you need to react quickly. And I wasn't doing a lot of cooking, but I'm very good at uh, when 10 things are thrown at me. I can triage very well on how to quickly assess the situation and quickly answer to what I am good at, which is feeding people. Um, so just just the level of despair, just the, the speed um, 
in which in the three weeks of the conflict, and I got back three days ago, just the speed of the conflict and how quickly a refugee crisis really happens and the amazing flux of it. You know, we're going to see a push through Moldova and whether Russia goes after Moldova is yet to be seen because I think that would be a walk in the park for them, sadly. Um, but that pushes them right against the Romanian border, which uh, is terrifying as well. So there's there's a lot of pain and anxiety. And, uh, yeah, my my great-grandfather got uh, – or my grandfather was uh, evacuated from Dunkirk uh, in his underwear and went on to plan D-Day and then died a week after oh. D-Day. And so these are the things that uh, are important to me to aid where you can and put – a lot of things on the back burner, literally, in my case, uh, and to go and help wherever we can. And whether it's just giving uh, he, uh, a donation or whatever. That's what I was about to ask you as we let you go. Um, the organization that you went over to work with, uh, I assume, is taking donations. There are a lot of us here who would like to help in any way we can. What's, again, the name of the organization? And is it a matter of going to their website and finding out yeah. a place to donate? Yeah, it's a World Central Kitchen, and you can go online and search that, and then they have a Ukrainian donation site. And let's let's be very clear: this is Jose Andres's uh, active response unit in times of crises, and they go all the way around the world. But they mm-hmm. they're dear to us around here because they really supported us feeling uh, feeding a ton of people early on in the pandemic. So they paid us to feed medical workers and doctors and first responders, but also impoverished communities around Athens um, and in Atlanta. And so I've been a point person for them for years now. Hugh Atchison, thank you so much for taking time uh, to be with us today. Appreciate your being here. And, um, you know, maybe it's because you were a philosophy major in college, but doing humanitarian work has always been a part of who you are as a chef and restaurateur. And I just want to say we're all grateful to you. So thanks, you for being with us today. Let's get thanks, to our Bill. first break. The show will be, we'll be back to talk politics in a moment. Kurt Young, Audrey Haynes, Tamar Hellerman with me today. Tamar, before we get to talking about the politics of today, one quick thing. I I read that couple of graphs from the Wall Street Journal piece this morning as we started the show. It is just stultifying, horrendous to watch what's developing in Ukraine. And and the fact that we get to see it happen in real time, uh, watching uh, CNN, uh, makes it all the more uh, awful uh, to watch tomorrow. Absolutely. On social media, you know, you can get those updates all day long. And on the one hand, I mean, it really hits at home, especially for me. Um, you know, I feel like this is the first war I've seen that that's truly played out kind of from start to finish every single mm. development. Uh, but it's also just haunting. And there are moments where sometimes I find it hard to get on with my day after reading and seeing some of these images, especially the pictures, these hospitals getting bombed, you know, especially uh, like birthing centers and stuff like that. It's been so hard to gi- digest. Uh, quick quick question for each of you, Audrey and Kurt. I think you both had spring break, so uh, you may not have an answer to this right now, but Audrey, uh, is this an, are students engaged in this on campus? I, the war really ramped up during your spring break, so maybe you haven't seen it yet, but do, do you expect 
that young people are actively engaged in watching this unfold and concerned? Well, I'll start. Um, before, before break, we had a number of students who had organized, um, you know, uh, rallies or, um, you know, uh, peace vigils or, you know, trying to raise attention for the issue. And I think that more and more people will be talking about it, particularly as the, the war itself um, gains even more coverage. I will tell you, I'm teaching a, a class today on, I, I teach a class on propaganda this semester, and the focus of oh. my my lecture is, um, you know, propaganda, and you should see, and anyone can see if they want to open up Pravda in the English language, the propaganda that's coming out of Russia right now, it is mystifying. Uh, you know, a big lie is not enough to describe the, the size of the, the, the gigantic uh, levels of disinformation that are being put out by the Russian government. Kurt? Yeah, this semester we're teaching a number of courses in the Department of Political Science uh, that are globally oriented. Um, our Politics of Africa course uh, cycles in this term. Um, and so that conversation that we just had with regard to the treatment of Africans uh, in Ukraine and Poland and other parts of the uh, region that are trying to escape uh, has been a really intense discussion. Uh, however, Bill, we're also teaching uh, my, my course um, uh, uh, similar to Audrey, my course this semester is Current World Problems, and it's a seminar course that shifts. And the focus this semester is on the survival of the post-World War II order. That just happened to be the discussion. And you could imagine how this issue has fed directly into it. Uh, Certainly, as we heard you discuss, all of the -the on-the-ground horrors that we are seeing is, is, uh, uh, is just undeniable, undeniable, but it is also an important discussion about the nature of the post-World War II order. Okay, I want to audit. I apologize for that. I just wanted to say I want to audit both of your classes. (laughs) All right, let's let's look at what's going on down at the Capitol tomorrow. Uh, It's crossover day. Uh, It is it is ostensibly the day at which any bill that hasn't passed one house, it's too late for it to go over to the other side and be passed by the end of the session. I was I've said for the last week in talking about crossover day that in some ways that's not the case. You can always find ways to keep a bill alive. And I was fascinated to read in the Atlanta Constitution this morning, uh, Senate Rules Chair Jeff Mullis told that to a Democrat who had a bill that she wanted to bring forward. She was worried that she might miss crossover day. And he said, don't worry, I can teach you some sneaky ways you can still get it done. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the one of the bills that we're watching and paying very close attention to is this kind of sweeping measure that was introduced last week that would make changes again this year in how elections are run. Uh, the two elements of that that I think are getting a lot of attention are, number one, the bill would allow for people to come and f- inspect physical ballots, and it would give the GBI a lot more power to um, oversee, to, to step in and uh, take on election complaints, bypassing the traditional role of the Secretary of State's investigative team. Tamar? Yeah, and I know a lot of the criticism, especially around the former thing you mentioned, allowing people to come and inspect paper ballots, is that 
it could lead to even more delays and kind of burdens on election workers as they kind of race to try and count ballots. Obviously, this is an issue perennially every single election cycle, particularly in Metro Atlanta when we're dealing with Fulton and DeKalb counties. Um, so, you know, I think there's a fear that if there's any sort of interaction with a voter and a poll worker that a poll watcher might find suspect, it can lead to all sorts of headaches and opportunities to sow doubts in the election system. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, if this manages to make it through today. You know, Republicans have said, you know, they said initially that they were going to wait um, after passing SB 202 last year to kind of see how it works, um, you know, to see before they make any other changes. So this was a bit of a surprise, but it is look like it does look like this is moving and moving fast. Yeah. Um, and, and Kurt, it, it sort of took a lot of people in the Capitol by surprise when it was uh, dropped uh, 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 late before a crossover day, I think just about a week ago now, Kurt. Right. And, and it's interesting because, uh, as I think um, um, someone uh, suggested at the beginning of this segment or this discussion, um, the, the feeling was that the governor was not going to accept any more of these uh, um, uh, types of bills going forward. Um, I think you mentioned that point, Bill. Um, but, you know, it's interesting to see how the, uh, the language is crafted so far. I imagine there'll be changes going forward, but let's assume that, that they'll remain intact. Uh, how do we define public uh, in this particular political environment? Um, what does that mean? Does it mean? I guess it means on the, at a basic level, any of us could have access to the ballots and, and maybe send our students argue to, to, to see what kind of research they can do. But in this particular climate, it means uh, any type of politicized external organization uh, can have access, which raises the next question, that the, uh, the next door that the bill seems to open up, which is what are the consequences of, of uh, access to these ballots? Uh, we've seen a willingness so far um, in different states throughout the country, uh, a willingness to go as far as assigning uh, um, some outside group uh, to uh, uh, stand as the legitimate uh, um, um, group responsible for counting of, of um, the, the delegates, representing, representing the delegates at the, at the, at the state level. Uh, what kind of connection between this step and those types of uh, uh, activities uh, uh, hang out in the, um, uh, you know, in, in, as possibilities and what can go forward? So, Audrey, I think what hangs over all of this is, once again, legislation that uh, comes out of the big lie that we need more safeguards to prevent again against fraud in the election, which three recounts of the 2020 Georgia vote have shown had no problems whatsoever, except for minor little uh, difficulties. And yet, once again, uh, this inspection of paper ballots, which also, by the way, raises questions about chain of custody of ballots, which is something Republicans have expressed great concern about in, in the 2020 election cycle. Well, that's a very good point that you make. So much of what we see um, in terms of discussion of this bill relates to um, its emergence and um, SB 202 sort of in the, in the shadow as a reaction to what is uh, the big lie, the stop the seal and the notion of rampant election fraud. You know, problematically, my approach to this has always been in any state election law is to look at it in terms of whether or not that law, when um, if enacted and if carried out, uh, would have 
partisan ramifications in, in, a, in a biased way. So, you know, evaluating this particular uh, law that has come out, um, you know, in terms of SB 1464, I would argue that there are parts of it that um, I have real concerns about, the ambiguities, necessity. But there are other parts of it that are, as always, reactions to what have been perhaps consistent issues throughout. And, you know, if you look at this in, in I would say, in, an, in a nonpartisan way, there are places where I was actually surprised at the language that was utilized uh, and, and how rational or, um, you know, uh, uh, more reasonable some of the language was. But there are places, especially um, I would talk about Section 2, where they're talking about performance reviews. It's full of ambiguities um, and, and other issues. Um, but there are some areas where they make clear statements about, you know, for example, the window. Having worked in um, analyzing some of our, our absentee ballots myself, you know, problematically, there were so many that came in after the deadline and they were rejected. I think it was something like a rejected uh, ballot. 52% of them were rejected for being late. So making sure that, that there is a window, it's a clear window, people are aware of it, will perhaps likely uh, increase the activity. Um, also, um, you know, uh, there was some concern from people about outside groups and, and ballots. When I look at that language, um, I would say, that um, it does try to make clear that nothing prevents an outside group from sending someone a, um, uh, a request, a blank request for an absentee ballot. And, and from people who work in this field too, some of the areas where they tighten up chain of custody or they try to make some more consistency across counties for elections have been things people have talked about for a long time. It just seems that now uh, they have the momentum to do it. And some of it uh, may be, in, in a sense, a reaction to the base and the stop the steal, but it doesn't really um, do anything that, uh, you know, changes a process in a way that is damning. Although, again, I will say there are parts of it. And I think when Democrats go after this bill, they need to be really careful that they focus on those areas, uh, especially. Um, real quickly, you said f rejection of something like 52-plus percent of ballots that came in after absentee ballots. That's not statewide. What is that? What's the universe that you're talking about there? Well, I think I am talking. You know what? I was looking at that. It came out of an AJC um, story okay. about absentee rejections. And of those ballots okay. that were rejected, 52 percent. And I've seen this myself. I've actually been oh, going through okay. absentee ballots. Okay. Of those ballots. that were rejected, 52 yes. percent came in. Okay. Thank you yes. for that. Tomorrow, real quick, uh, the uh, a Fair Fight Action and other voting rights groups have vowed that they will fight this ferociously. They've got a seven-figure campaign uh, launch. They're going to be lobbying uh, very hard against this bill. So as you say, uh, we're going to watch to see whether this uh, moves forward or not. And given that the speaker and the governor had said before the session, we don't need any more election laws this year, uh, will they, faced with uh, uh, a lot of opposition, decide maybe we'll cut back on this bill and make some minor tweaks? 
At the same time, I don't think ads from Fair Fight are going to hold much sway with, with the Republican caucus yeah. uh, in the legislature. Yeah. And that's what they're the ones who matter right now. The Democrats do not have the votes to stop this if Republicans are largely unified. So if they think it's a problem, it's going to pass. I think where, where Democrats have leverage is later on, you know, this could help further rally the Democratic base, um, you know, in November. We don't really know the impacts of SB 202 yet, what passed, uh, what, what, uh, was uh, passed into law last year. We, ha of course, had the mayoral elections here in Atlanta, uh, but that was at a much smaller scale than what we're going to see this year with the midterms. Um, so we really don't know the impact, but who knows? It could be a huge boon to Democrats because they're so fired up about this, uh, but, but we're not sure yet. And uh, you know, we've hinted at this in this discussion, but, you know, something like three quarters of Republican voters believe that there was massive fraud in, in 2020. Yeah. You know, that our, you know, our audits in Georgia uh, don't, you know, that, that doesn't bear out in, based on our audits. It, they did not find any major fraud or, or anything like that. But still, perception is reality. And if three quarters of your base believes that there, there was fraud, I understand why these Republican lawmakers are kind of bending over backwards to address those concerns. Yeah, we'll watch it, Kurt. Yeah, I'm, I'm, what, what I think is important here, Bill, to, to make sure that we keep in, in, in sight, you, you, you raised the question about the big lie, and it's becoming uh, pretty uh, common now for uh, uh, in the public discourse for there to be a, a strong emphasis on that contradiction. This was a, this, these policies are wrapped around and these laws are wrapped around a big lie. But I think that there's something else that needs to be discussed. This emphasis on pushing these policies in the midst of a big lie for what purpose? And I think the clear answer to that, I think, is that we are in a particular moment in history where one of the two major political parties is engaged in two particular uh, tracks. One track is to demonize the other party in a way that associates that party cheating, alleged cheating, um, with an attack on freedom, an attack on ways of life, an attack on uh, the very existence of a more legitimate uh, um, grouping in, in American society, to demonize that group, but then also to seize political power as a result of those fears that are being strengthened. I think these, these, this bill is a part of that narrative, and we have to keep an eye on that backdrop while we're discussing what's taking place in the uh, intricacies of the bill. It cannot be, it cannot be separated from the zeitgeist right now. Uh, I, I just think that's, that's just critically important as we uh, talk about these bills. Um, there are several other uh, pieces of legislation that are, that are worth talking about. We're, but today we're going to move on. Tomorrow on the show, we will look at what happened on Crossover Day and look at things like did horse race uh, horse racing in Georgia get uh, approved to move on and continue on uh, in the session is just uh, one example. What about a bill that would crack down on uh, street protests uh, like the Black Lives Matters protests that we saw in the summer of 2020? Those are some of the measures that are going to uh, be worthy of our attention, I think, on tomorrow's show once the crossover day has passed. But for now, if we could tomorrow, I, I do want to move on. Um, Donald Trump, comes to uh, Georgia, he's going to be in commerce on March 26th to uh, primarily uh, hold a rally uh, that he hopes will kickstart David Perdue's uh, really slow-starting uh, gubernatorial campaign. But, it's, but it, I think 
we should also say that he's now got a ticket that he's endorsed here. And certainly whether he talks about these other folks or not, they'll be there. Uh, Purdue, Jody Heiss running for secretary of state against uh, Brad Raffensperger, who refused to find the votes Trump wanted to win Georgia. Lieutenant Governor candidate Burt Jones, Vernon Jones running in the 10th district, who sort of got that nod, I think, as a, as a way of saying, get out of the governor's race, move to that race, and we'll get you Trump's endorsement. But here's the other interesting thing. He's also now endorsed Patrick Witt, way down the ballot, a candidate for insurance commissioner running against Brian Kemp's uh, current insurance commissioner, John King. And that just tells you, I think, tomorrow, and certainly comment on all of this, but how far Trump is willing to go to fight a war against Brian Kemp. Absolutely. And this is the ultimate test of his clout. It'll be interesting to see um, how many of these candidates are able to make it through a primary, Um, you know. especially kind of a, a pretty low-key person like like John King in the insurance commissioner role. You know, he hasn't yeah. done anything to, to anger Trumpies, but the fact that he's an ally of Brian Kemp, I think, is enough to, to do it. So it'll be interesting to see how much of a bump there is, especially as you alluded to, David Perdue, who's really struggled with fundraising and being able to match kind of the sure might that uh, Brian Kemp has been able to. Um, you know, to, to bring not only with his fundraising, but also using the raw powers of his office, um, you know, to, to make things happen. Um, Audrey, uh, we know that uh, the, I think it was the AJC poll, and tomorrow, correct me if I'm wrong, that showed Brian Kemp out front of, uh, no, no, it wasn't an AJC poll. I take that back. One of the polls that we looked at, all of us looked at, and I apologize for not remembering which one it was, showed that Kemp led David Perdue, but that 40 percent of the Republican respondents did not know that uh, Perdue had been endorsed by uh, uh, Trump. So presumably the Perdue campaign hopes that once word gets out with Trump down here on March 26, that will give him a little momentum among those diehard Trumpites. Um, We've been discussing that here with some of the results from our own survey research center, looking at people's knowledge of um, the Trump endorsement and whether that will be critical. In fact, we're talking about doing some um, surveys over time, watching to see if that information increases and whether it has an impact on the distribution of uh, preferences. But um, it is amazing to watch. And I wanted to go back to something that Tamar said, and that is, You know, seeing how Trump does in terms of these endorsements and whether or not these candidates, many of whom, like Vernon Jones and and Witt, are little, I mean, I will say have little experience or are, you know, not your atypical Georgia Republicans. And I will tell you from my own experience talking to people who are working in campaigns right now, there are a lot of Republicans in the state who are really unhappy with what's going on with some of these endorsements. And they think in the long run, it is really going to hurt the party. It's going to hurt some of their chances in the general election. And that Trump putting his finger and stirring the pot is really bad, period, for Georgia Republican politics. Now, that's, that may not be the case for the people who are getting his attention and you know money associated with it. But in the end, it demonstrates further that Trump cares about Trump first, certainly not the the GOP and Georgia first. 
you know, it was it wasn't that long ago that we thought great great points, Audrey. It wasn't that long ago that we thought that uh, Trump's losing of the election meant that he would ride off into the sunset or maybe even become indicted uh, uh, with regard to the various um, 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 uh, uh, issues confronting him and his organization. But what we're seeing, Bill, is uh, these endorsements are small battlegrounds in the larger war for the future of the Republican Party, and I think that. Um, I think that uh, the, the message has been communicated to those who are in full support of the future of the party in the hands of Donald Trump. The lesson from the 2020 election was that, yes, there can be control of the Senate, there can be control of the, um, uh, of the state houses and the, and the control of the, the, the federal judiciary and the, and the court, the uh, high court, but unless there is solid control at the state and local level. Uh, all of those other parts of the election process are still hanging the balance in terms of the future of the Republican Party. And so there, this is a concerted effort, not just to win elections, right, because we know that's why parties exist. Parties exist to win elections. But uh, in, in the larger war for the future of the party, I think those who are aligned with the Trump, uh, um, 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 with the Trump, with Trump's leadership see these kinds of elections as battlegrounds that must win battle, uh, battles. And, and I think this is a part of a kind of a broader calculus. Uh, that We're we talking about Georgia, but it's being replicated all over the country, particularly in states yes. where uh, the election, elections, was, were, elections were close in 2020. There's two questions for me kind of looking ahead into 2022. The first is just how much clout does Trump have with Republican voters at this point? Um, sure, in primaries, it tends to be your, your party faithful, who I think in general are more likely to be amenable to Trump and kind of what he's interested in. But I do think there still are many Republicans who might have voted for Trump in 2016 and 2020, but who are eager to kind of turn the page. And when you look at what Kemp especially has done over the last four years, um, he has a very conservative record. Other than, you know, getting into a fight with Trump, he hasn't necessarily done anything that, that isn't considered um, conservative. Um, so it, I'll be curious to see how many Republican primary voters ultimately vote for non-Trump candidates. The other question for me is what happens if Trump candidates lose um, the Republican primary? Will Trump come in and try and, like, derail um, the campaigns of like a Brian Kemp uh, or a Brad Raffensperger uh, going into a general election, assuming that they win their primaries. Trump has made comments at rallies about how he thought Stacey Abrams, for example, would have been better as governor as, as uh, Brian Kemp. I don't know how much he means that. Uh, but will he go in there and try and stick his thumb on the scale to allow a Democrat to win rather than a Republican enemy? Uh, before we get to a break, which I've got to do in a sec tomorrow, you remind me of one quick thing. Uh, you know, uh, here's Trump attacking Kemp left and right, even to the point of, of, you know, endorsing a candidate way down the ballot for insurance commissioner against his own guy. Kemp has shown, I think it's fair to say, pretty remarkable discipline. You've got to think that that quietly when he goes home at night, he's fuming about some of the things that Trump is saying and doing. But he's shown great discipline in Keep staying on course, talking about his own record, not in any way uh, coming back at Trump. Uh, you know, tomorrow that's that's a that's a good sign for I think Kemp moving forward, assuming he can win the primary. 
he cannot afford to alienate those Trump voters. He is going to need them for the general election. So it's a smart strategy. But as you mentioned, lots of self-discipline, um, especially when you have him kind of going after you constantly. All right, let's get to our final break of the show. Stacey Abrams launched her campaign yesterday. Let's talk a little bit about that when we come back. Right after uh, the show ends today, I'm going to get back to work finishing up the Political Rewind newsletter, which goes out every Wednesday. You can get it in your inbox. It, uh, I think some of the stories that I think are either most interesting or most important in the week's uh, polit- political news are part of that. Um, if you want to subscribe, just go to gpb.org newsletters. We'd love to have you uh, join us as the newsletter. I mean, we've only been doing it for about a month or so, and our our uh, list of people is expanding greatly, and I'm really grateful for that. All right, uh, Tamara, it feels like we've been waiting for eons for Stacey Abrams to be out there campaigning for governor. Uh, uh, she isn't in quite the hurry that the other that the Republican candidates are because she has a field to herself. Nevertheless, the time is now. Yesterday, she began a statewide tour. She started in Cuthbert uh, and, and uh, gave a, a, a talk to her supporters in front of the Southwest Georgia Regional Medical Center, which is one of the hospitals that has shut down in rural Georgia. And, of course, it helps her promote her theme of a full expansion of Medicaid and affordable health care for all Georgians. Tamar? Yeah, this was a major theme of her 2018 campaign for governor. And it's a really easy way for her to kind of put daylight between herself and Brian Kemp and show what she would do differently. And the polling is behind her on it. Something like three quarters of Georgia voters, um, I believe that was our poll in the AJC, say say they want it. At the same time, um, there's a very vocal um, group of opponents in the Republican base that, that, you know, Republicans here in Georgia have made the calculation that it makes sense for, for them to not expand it. Um, and so, you know, she, she's been talking about that, um, you know, and, and it's clear that this is going to be a central pillar of her campaign in 2022. And, you know, she's, she's talked even about her own experiences. She shared a story yesterday about her own family, her, uh, her parents moved in with her, I guess, uh, during the pandemic and they discovered, you know, a, um, a condition with her father, something on his skin that was, uh, I guess he, he had sepsis or was about to have it. And so she was able to kind of pick up the phone and send him to a world-class hospital. And she kind of talked about how, uh, you know, that's something we could get in Atlanta, but for how in, in a bunch of rural places in Georgia, that that's not possible and how she thinks expanding Medicaid would be able to help with that. Um, uh, we're going to watch that uh, play out over and over on her campaign because, as Tamar points out, that what is a big differentiation for her with uh, with either Kemp or Purdue. Um, Kurt, when she uh, appeared uh, late yesterday in uh, Atlanta at a rally, uh, she said something uh, pretty interesting, referring back to her days establishing Fair Fight and other nonprofit organizations that uh, built the voting rolls up and then got people out to the polls monitoring or overseeing fairness of elections, she said, I did the work and now I want uh, the job, which is an interesting way to put it. Kurt? Yeah, it was, it was strategic because she, to her credit, she was out front uh, very early on in the, the battles around what's now become uh, discussions around um, uh, the protection of voter rights. And we see that the work that she was doing and leading 
uh, and there are many, many others now. I don't want to make this uh, one personality uh, type of discussion, but there are many others. But the kind of discussions that she was a central part of uh, in, in the Atlanta area uh, and other parts of the country now become, of course, a, a critical issue um, in, in, in Congress um, and uh, in terms of presidential politics. But I also think I also think that it is clearly connected to the broader strategy across the state for her campaign, which is to get out the vote, mobilizing the the, uh, the Democratic base, um, uh, uh, not just in Atlanta. I really appreciate the emphasis uh, that you made earlier on Cuthbert, right? One of the unsung heroes to the extent that one sees the victory in 2020 uh, for the senatorial con- uh, uh, candidates as a, as a, 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 as, a as a positive. Um, was the role of rural voters. Uh, much of the attention was shown on Atlanta um, and, and the metro area, but those rural areas turned out uh, significantly in ways that helped to deliver uh, the vote for the senatorial candidates and, of course, at the presidential level as well. So she's tapping into that, and I think you'll see that uh, stepping in and out of Atlanta uh, throughout the campaign. Uh, Audrey, uh, in in reference to the line, I did the work and now I want the job, the Kemp campaign responded that uh, while Brian Kemp led Georgia through the pandemic, Abrams, quote, spent her time chasing the covers of style magazines and running running a shadow campaign for president. Georgians know who's who, Audrey. (laughs) Yeah, I'd want to mention that the person who said that, um, Kemp's uh, campaign press secretary, is actually a graduate of the Applied Politics Program. So just got to get that little little bit in there. Um, so let me just say that, you know, in looking at these early uh, campaign messages coming out of both, you know, both Kemp and Abrams are going to be talking about being workers. Uh, you know, Kemp is often p- portrays himself as working on behalf of Georgians, you know, leading for them. Stacey Abrams is going to, to do that, too. And I think there'll be a big battle about which one of them can capture Sort of the practical elements of serving the public, and in fact, and you know, um, that's much less political, much less sort of ideo- ideological, and much more bread and butter. And, and maybe we'll see some of that. But of course, they're also going to be framing each other as she didn't do any work, she didn't do any leading. So we'll see more of that kind of um, thematic approach as well. Um, tomorrow, we're almost out of time. But the fact that she's talking about her one Georgia campaign, which she's going to use frequently, uh, tells us she's trying to erase partisan lines as she runs for governor. You may be a Republican, but the issues I care about are going to be of use, are going to be valuable to you, no matter your party affiliation tomorrow. Sure, but that doesn't erase the fact that she's, you know, first of all, she's extremely well-known. She's extremely polarizing. People know who she is, and she doesn't have a lot of room to expand. Um, People love her or they hate her. And uh, there's not many people who you can persuade at this point. It's all about turning out your base. Yeah, but it doesn't stop her from trying to get that message out. Tamar Hallerman, Kurt Young, uh, Audrey Haynes, thank you. We're really out of time for today's show, but I appreciate your all being with us. Stacey Abrams' campaign released a one-minute digital ad, spent a million dollars on it. It's going to be on TV, too. We'll talk about that and maybe uh, listen to a little bit of it on tomorrow's show. See you all tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Bye-bye.